0: Good morning. Uh, Go ahead, take out your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Samuel. All right, I'm going to go ahead and get that out uh, at the front so so that you have a couple of minutes to find that. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. I think I said last week, but we started a new series going through the life of David. Typically here, uh, we just go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, We just look at it chapter by chapter. Uh, With the Life of David series, this 11-week series we started last week. Uh, just setting up the life of David and who he is. Uh, But we're going to be going through some different passages. So we'll look at one passage at a a time per week. Uh, And this week we're in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Last week we looked at chapter 16. But we will look at some text in 2 Samuel and also some Psalms that David wrote. Uh, So it's important for you to have your Bible uh, as well, because today we're not going to be able to read through, just time not permitted for us just to read all 58 verses. So I'm going to give you a a summary story. Uh, We said last Last week, this will be told in story form as it presents itself uh, in literary form. And so we'll tell the story of most of it, read some of it, uh, and see how it applies uh, to us today. Uh, But first, Samuel chapter 17, and we have today uh, the iconic story of David and Goliath. And so most of you are going to feel like, I don't even need to look at my Bible. Uh, I know the story. You don't even have to have been a part of the church or grown up in the church to know about David and Goliath. Uh, It is referenced all over our culture. Uh, If you watched football yesterday, college football, you probably heard it referenced to. I feel like it happens every single week uh, over some game, some fight, something, some competition. Uh, We love to reference David and Goliath. It's this idea that one side of of the team or the person or the, the obstacle, it seems like for this one side, everything is just insurmountable. There's absolutely no way that they could have any form of victory. Defeat is inevitable, and it would take some sort of miracle of sorts uh, for them to even get close, let alone get victory. And then on the other side, uh, uh, the other team, the other side of the game of the competition, uh, you have a team where it just looks like the odds are stacked. There is no way that they will not win. Victory is sure, and it would take some sort of miracle of sorts for them to lose. Uh, And so you kind of have these two opposing uh, teams, people, whatever it is in a competition, and this is how we look at it in culture, and and one of them clearly is the loser. It's just a matter of playing the game, and we're going to feel bad for them. And then the other one is clearly going to be victorious. But somehow, right, and this is what we look forward to, the underdog story in our culture. We relate to this story so much, and it's why I would argue that it's so iconic. It's why we tell it over and over. over and over again because somehow in some way at times the underdog wins the the underdog is victorious and it's absolutely crazy when it happens in a game this is when everybody that thought they came to watch was going to lose and they were going to have to walk out of a stadium being the losing fans of the losing team suddenly are absolutely shocked and they storm the field and cause mayhem all throughout the stadium. They're so excited and they're so elated that their team was supposed to lose and now they have won. And the other team is sitting there, the Goliath, so to speak, and they're sitting there with their head in their hands, stunned, shocked. How could this have happened? It never should have gone this way. And we fixate on this story in our culture because it is so powerful. Every single one of us relates to it in some way. We all feel like David at some time. And and we're going to see today that there are characteristics of David that we can certainly relate to. Now, that's not what this story, maybe we typically look at this story and think it's about David and my Goliath. And there's certainly application in that, but that's not what this whole story is about. And I think that's why this story is so powerful and why we love it so much. But we do relate to David, life itself, does it not? Like it just feels like we go out into life every single day and it just feels like we're facing Goliath. Like seeking uh, substance in life, purpose, satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, happiness, like all of those things just feel like we are up against something that can't be beaten. We can't figure it out. It's just too big a challenge. So we all relate to it, and that's why we fixate on it, and it's one of the most powerful stories of hope in our culture. We live in a humanity that moves through time and space by telling stories, and this one is dominant. And it's really the biblical writer's intent. It wasn't by accident. The writer writes this story in such a way that we're drawn in, it's thematic, it brings us uh, this story to life, it gives unbelievable amounts of detail. Detail like no other story that we read in the Old Testament. It brings detail that that just goes beyond any other story. And the whole point is that we would be drawn into it, that we would feel a part of it. Like we would feel like we're there in the moment. And that it would be like almost watching a movie or being in the story itself. It gives this detail to let us know that this is a historical event. It's telling us the story of David and Goliath and Saul and the Israelite people and the Philistines, but, but it's also something much bigger. It, it's a story that every single one of our hearts longs to hear. Our ears desire, uh, our heart longs to feel, our ears desire to hear, and our minds desire to understand and comprehend and, and really begin to see life through the implications and application of this text. So yes, it's historical. It really happened, and we'll see that in the detail. It happened in a place, in a time. These are real people and real events, but it's also a part of something much bigger. It's a part of God's redemptive story. So there's multiple things taking place in this text and one of the reasons that it's so detailed, as I said, is to draw us in and we're not going to have time to get into all this detail this morning. Now I am a detail-oriented person and I typically preach that way and you're probably going, if this is a detailed text, we're going to be here all day uh, because you give too much detail as it is and this is a very detailed text. So we're not going to have time to get into all of it this morning, but it is there for a purpose. And like I said, we're not gonna see it typically in any other Hebrew text. You're not, you're not gonna go and read the book of Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter one. It's not gonna start off by saying Adam was created and he stood six foot three and he was the perfect weight and he stood on top of a hill and overlooked all of the animals that he had just named, these particular things and Eve was there that came after him and, and she was the most beautiful woman to ever be created, right? A true brick house, 36, 24, 36. Right. Like we just don't get that kind of detail. And there's a reason for that. One, if we got that kind of detail of Adam and Eve before sin entered into and rebellion entered into the world, like all of us would just be obsessed with trying to look that way, feel that way. Every guy in here would have long hair. Every girl would think the standard of beauty is the brick house. Right. And and, and it just wouldn't be good for us. But two, it's just not how Hebrew writings and literature was done at this time. And so even just the detail allows us to know that there's something happening here that's really important. It's trying to draw us in. It's the reason today we still tell this story, not only in the church, but in all of culture. It's why we're fixated on it, because of the detail that we get And I want us to see that this morning and how it applies to us. And so as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, just really quickly, uh, last week, uh, we kind of introduced the life of David and saw that he was anointed the new king, but he's not king yet. And this story goes all the way back to the beginning, how we were created to, to give glory to God and to worship Him, to know who we are in relation to our Creator and where we belong in relation to Him, in relation to one another in Him, and, and what we are to do with the things that we have and how we're to give Him glory with everything that we possess. And, and in that, we can actually thrive. Like, life is joy-filled. It, it, it makes sense. It, it's how we were created to function. Anytime something create or works the way that it was created, it just it, it has joy. It has the ability to function with confidence. But we walked away from God in our, in rebellion, and we began to seek in His creation what only he could be for us. We began to worship other things, our possessions, our abilities, our accomplishments, our relationships, all that were created to reveal his glory in and through, but we began to give them glory, and confusion and mass chaos begins to come. But God, in his grace and love, makes a promise to his people, Adam and Eve, that he would send a Messiah, that he would send a Savior, which we'll see in this text as it begins to flesh out a little bit even more clearly. But he promised that he would come, and then he comes to a man named Abraham, and he makes a covenant promise with him, that the Israelite people would begin, and the Messiah would come out of the Israelite people, and that he would provide for the people, and he promised that he would take care of the people. He brought them out of different situations that they were in because of their rebellion. He brings them into the promised land. God also gave the people judges. He was the ultimate king and everybody was to look to him and worship him and follow him and and obey him. But he gave judges and prophets to help, to guide the people, to remind them, to draw them back when they begin to veer off the way that God had called them to be as a people. They were supposed to be a people that revealed to the nations all around them and to one another what it's like to live for the glory of God that there is a kingdom and there is a king that is fulfilling and joyful and and we can function in the way that we were created to function, but they struggle mightily to do that. And as they walked away from God and in rebellion, they continued to have other enemies rise up against them. They were being more influenced by the nations around them than they were influencing. They were supposed to influence the nations around them with truth and love, but instead they're being influenced by the nations around them with false gods and with the sword. And so war after war breaks out, battle after battle and they look around the Israelite people and they, and they say to themselves, you know what? It's not really working for us. We're, we're, we're looking at these other gods and we're trying to relate to our God in some way. But it, it, everybody else, every other nation, they have a king to look up to. They have a physical king that's leading them into battle and leading them into peace. And, and they begin to desire to have a physical king, though they were supposed to worship God and God alone. So they go to this prophet, this judge named Samuel, and they ask that he would anoint a king for them. They're influenced by the world around them rather than influencing with joy, love, and truth. And Samuel does not love the idea, but he goes to God and God grants the wish of the people and he anoints a man named Saul. But Saul is a king that does not follow after God's own heart. And that was very important for the Israelite people. It's a king that's set apart. It's not like any other king in any other kingdom. It's supposed to reveal the kingdom of God. He doesn't do that. And so he is taken off of the throne, even though in our text, after David is anointed, as we saw last week, Saul's still the king for some time. But God anoints David. And David goes back to being a shepherd in Bethlehem. He's doing minuscule tasks for his family and his father. He's in waiting. And we saw all of that last week. He's still not king. Finally, he's called to be a harp player and a musician for the king in his court, to soothe his soul. And so as we get to our text in chapter 17, David has been anointed king. The Spirit of God has come upon him. He's the next king of Israel. But Saul is still practicing as king. And David's still a shepherd and he's in the king's court playing music and everything just seems like it's in waiting. And and we talked about how God works in the midst of all of that last week. But an enemy arises. It's not a new enemy. It's an enemy that's been against the Israelite people for generation after generation. But the Philistines are there and they are threatening at this point. To overrun Israel and change the Israelite people as they know it. To take over their land and to take them over as a people, to enslave them for generation after generation. And we've gotten to this point in the battle, and some scholars believe that the battle has already been taken place. I, think, I know a lot of times when we uh, talk about David and Goliath, we kind of see this valley of Elah that is there, and, and it's just this emptiness in the middle, and the Philistines are on one mountaintop, and the uh, Israelites are on another, and they just kind of walked up, and all this takes place. But the battle has already been raging. Lives have been lost And here they stand, the Philistines on one side of the valley and and the Israelites on the other side of the valley. Real place. You can go there today. Archaeologists have found many artifacts from this time period. It's an important place in the Israelites' land because there's a pathway there, a Roman road now that you can still see, that they would use to get water and, and use other trade routes and different things like that. So it's important for us to know the Philistines are on one side, the Israelites are on the other. The trade route is in the between. It's an important valley for the Israelite people, and it's on their land, the land that God had already promised them. So the Philistines are actively pursuing to take the land that God had given to the Israelite people. And this is where the battle will take place. The Philistines also are extremely powerful. This is something that we have to know in these first couple of verses that we see in chapter 17. They are wealthy far more wealthy than the Israelites. They control the three major cities on the most major trade route in the world at this time, the Via Moris or the Way of the Sea. So they're wealthy, they have trade, they are powerful, they are advanced in weaponry. As the Israelite people are looking over the valley, they are seeing a people who are more powerful and wealthy than them, but also who have more technology than they could ever imagine. They have more weaponry and better weapons than any other nation at the time. They were amongst the first people to work with bronze and iron in what would later be referred to and is referred to today as the Iron Age. So they have weapons of bronze and, and iron and things that the Israelites don't have. And so here they are and the stakes are high. Whoever loses the battle again loses their land. Generations of slavery would come after this. And from the worldly perspective, I just want to kind of put ourselves in in the story just for a moment. This is what the the author intends for us to do. If we are all Israelite people, and we're standing on one side of the valley looking at the Philistines, and we see their power and number, and we see their weaponry, and we begin to be overwhelmed with the reality of all that they have in light of what we have— we begin to look, as we talked last week, from an outer man type of lens where life is defined and our faith is defined and our courage is defined or our fear is defined by what others have and what we have, by what we possess, what we've accomplished. Everything is about the physical world of what do I feel and, and what can I have and what can I possess and, and, and the appearance of how things look in our lives. Every circumstance begins to be seen through that lens, where we're constantly judging what is the enemy, and what do they have, and who am I, and what do I have. And when we're only looking in the physical realm from the outer standpoint of of life, then we will constantly have, and this is one of the reasons that we relate so well to David and Goliath, though we need to see it in such a bigger aspect than we typically do, but we will come up against circumstances and enemies in our lives that we will not have enough physical ability or physical possessions or enough heart to overcome and it will overwhelm us and we will respond in fear. This is where the Israelite people are. They're thinking about losing their lives as they look across the valley. They're thinking about their spouses who will be taken, their children who will be enslaved, the history of their people and the future of their people potentially wiped away and they feel hopeless, completely helpless. Now they should have confidence as we just said, if we know our Old Testament, we know the promises of God, God had given them the land. He promised that he would protect them from any enemy as long as they're giving him glory and they're revealing him to all the nations and whatever he allows or whatever he causes in their life, he would do so for their good. But if they give him glory and they reveal him in the kingdom that he has called them to reveal, then he would protect them. And, and, and so listen to me, the Philistines should have already been defeated. This battle should not be here at all if they trusted and believed and placed their faith in the thing God who can actually overcome any enemy and any battle that we are in. See, because they looked at it from an outer standpoint, what do we have and what do they have? And they weren't looking at it from what does our God have and what has our God done and what has our God promised in comparison to anything that he has created, they have forgotten in their minds and in their hearts that there is one they can have faith in that allows them to trust no matter what circumstance they come in the face of. They know that God will protect them and provide for them. They've totally forgotten. And so they feel defeated. They've forgotten what God has done in the past. And and let me just tell you just really quickly as a a quick side note. If you are not, I know we probably have some people in here today that that don't know the Lord as their, their Savior and Lord. And if that's you this morning, I'm glad that you're here. My prayer for you is that through this text, you would see the gospel truth and you would place your faith in the one true king who saves you from everything that is defeating you and gives you the life that you were created to have by his grace through faith. But for the rest of us who are here, if you are a follower of Christ and he is not the center of everything that you are in the lens in which you see the world, as the heart that he has given you and the community that you have with him and the God who has done all things for you to have life and salvation and eternity, and that's not the lens in which you see the rest of the world and all of creation, if we are not living in trust of him, obedience to him, and faith in him, then listen, you will, as the Israelites in this text, have battles in your your life that you never should have faced and would have already won this is what we see the Israelite people doing here they're not placing their faith in the one who saves them and sustains them and provides for them and because of that they're facing a battle that God is allowing to reveal a beautiful thing that will call them back to him but all the Israelites can see is how big and strong the enemy is how great they are how much they have And listen, this is how the world works. Their faith and therefore their confidence and courage comes in what they have. So their equation for life, again, the lens in which they see everything, is our physical things versus the physical things we face equal fear our courage. And no matter what you place your faith in, in this world, anything that is created anything that is not the God who has created all things and sustains them, anything else, you will come up against enemies and circumstances that no matter what you have your faith in in this world, they will not be able to defeat. And your confidence and courage will dwindle and fear will rise. See, whatever your faith is in will, in your circumstances, be revealed in fear or courage. And if your faith is in something that is powerful enough to overcome all things, then you will be able to have joy and peace that surpasses, as the New Testament tells us, any circumstance and situation that you find yourself in. But if your faith is not in something that is powerful enough to overcome all things, then in all things you will find fear. You will find anxiety. You will find confusion. It's the difference between joy and despair, and confidence and timidity, truth and total confusion, trust and anxiety. What makes it more interesting, though, as we get back to the text here in these first several verses of detail, we see that the, Phil- the uh, Philistines have a man named Goliath, they have a representative. Not only are they more powerful and do they have better weaponry, but they also have a guy that would strike fear in the heart of everyone. The text tells us that he's somewhere between eight and nine feet, nine inches tall. Most scholars agree with that, which seems a little bit far-fetched, does it not? It can easily become at this point a children's story that we just like to kind of tell, and it really encourages us for a time to face our giants. But it's really not that far-fetched. Certainly, there are historical events and happenings and writings where we have different people who are classified as giants. And even in modern history, the tallest man right now, actually, Sultan Kosin, is a Turkish farmer who's 8'2". Just farming. What a waste of height. <laughs> but he had a condition uh, where he just continued to grow uh, until he was brought to the University of Virginia, and they fixed it all up, and now he's just poor guy stuck at 8'2". The tallest in modern history that we know is Robert Wadlow, and he was 8'11". And and so, yes, it's it's rare. There's not that many people around that are this tall, but he could have been this tall. It's not that far-fetched for us to believe. Regardless, though, he's a big guy. He's bigger than everybody else. We do know that. He is the first guy. If you're the the visiting basketball team, getting off the bus at the home team's gym, like he's the first guy you're pushing off the bus. Like strike fear in this team, all right? Like he is the one who represents the Philistine people. He's a huge man. And he, not only that, is covered in high-tech armor. He has, it tells us, That he has stuff that the Israelites don't have. He has a chain coat of armor that weighs 125 pounds. One thing that I'm going to draw back on later, and I want us to get it now, is this chain mail that he had on. In the Hebrew writings, there's a word there that describes it, that describes it like the looking of a serpent. That there's this giant man who has this chainmail on. And, and just remember this for later in the time. But it would look like when he is standing there, it would look like he has snake skin. He would look like a, a serpent standing there, the enemy of the people of God. He had bronze covering his head and his legs. He had a bronze javelin, the text says, around his soldier, so, uh, shoulders. And he carried a spear. In verse 7, it tells us that just the tip of the spear made in bronze weighed 15 pounds. So this is a huge spear that could do some extreme damage. Not only that, we're told that even though he has all of this tech on, and he is bigger than everybody else, and he strikes fear into everybody that sees him, he also has someone who walks in front of him. He has a shield bearer. So this is not like somebody who carries your, your weapons. And, and Saul, or whoever it is, or Goliath can just look over and say, hey, hand me my sword or hand me my spear. No, this is somebody who actually stands in front of him with a shield. This would have to be a pretty big guy, too, to actually cover Goliath. And you would have a shield of iron. So it's just like, imagine an iron door just there in front of Goliath. And when the door moves, that's the man that you see. And I know when we think of modern warfare, we don't typically think of, wow, bronze and iron and spears that were huge and and somebody carrying a shield. Man, they were incredibly advanced for their time because of all the things that we have today. But we're supposed to read this, and one of the reasons that this detail is there is we're supposed to read this and think, wow. Wow. If we were there, like, this would seem like the true Goliath. Like, this is why we think of Goliath in the story this way. There's no way anybody could beat him. Robert Aldridge says, we get this much detail because it's important for it to be obvious to the reader that Goliath constitutes power and what it looks like to be a human hero. See, we're supposed to be looking across the valley right now, and we're supposed to be seeing Goliath, and we're supposed to feel in our hearts, there's Superman. There's nothing we can do. There's no way that we can beat him. Him. And here comes Goliath, and he steps out from all of the people. And this is part of the story that we're very familiar with. He, he steps out from across the valley in front of the people, and he defies God. He defies the living God of the Israelites. He blasphemes against him. He says that their God, Dagon, is greater than the God of Israel. And then he says something, and, and really that begins to set this up, but he says something that really sets up why this story is so beautiful why it applies to us in such an incredible way and why we can ultimately relate to it, though I don't think it's the reason we think we relate to this and we often, in the way that we read this story. But while he's defying God, he has this proposition. So he steps out and basically he gives this idea of representative warfare. He cries out to the Israelite people that he is the Philistine's champion. The word champion there means that he's the mediator that he is legally representing the Philistine people. He says, I am the champion of the Philistines. I represent them legally, and I'm calling out to you for a champion of the Israelite people. And if one person steps forward and battles me, one versus one, the winner takes all. So do you have a champion? And all of Israel is looking at the champion of the Philistines, Goliath, the mediator, the legal representation of the people. And he's coming out, the scripture says, twice a day for 40 days. So 80 times he comes out and says this in just a little over the period of a month to the Israelite people. And every single one of them is terrified. They believe because their hearts and minds have been turned from their creator and they've begun to look at the world around them and judge life and judge fulfillment and judge what they can do and judge their courage and put their faith in everything that they see and what they have and what they possess and what their enemy has and what their enemy possesses. And because of that, they look at themselves and they look at the Philistines and they look at Goliath and they think to themselves, we have no champion. We have no champion. Goliath is a great champion, and we have no one that can face him. All because they've sidelined in their hearts and minds the God, the king, that they were created to represent who promised he would provide for them. They have misplaced faith, and therefore their courage in this circumstance turns to fear because their faith is in their possessions. Listen to me this morning. You can live your life running from God. You can make decisions in your life that replace God. You can turn to other gods and worship them for salvation in this world. You can place your faith in things for life that you believe will be satisfying and fulfilling, but there will come a day when all other gods fail you. And you will feel like you have no champion, but you desperately need one. Evil is too great, the world is too strong. Your heart is too drawn to it. You cannot be your own champion. It will never work. You will always fail. There's no champion in a relationship. There's no champion in a job. There's no champion in anything you can accomplish. There's no champion that has ever been created that will fulfill you and sustain you because you were created only for one. But this is what the Israelite people do. And just as then, we will realize that none of the things that I have made my champion can defeat my enemy. This is what we find out in our lives. And therefore, in verse 25, the Israelite people, they're just at their wits end. They're ready to give up. Verse 25 says, surely Goliath has defeated our God. He defies him. This is where the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, this is where that trail, it ends. Like we have no hope anymore. Sure, he's done some things in the past and sure he's provided for us and sure he's made promises to us, but, but we are looking and we see something that is insurmountable and therefore there is no way. This is the end of the road for our God. We are doomed. But what makes the story beautiful is that that's not the end. If we were watching this as a movie, then, then the camera would be on this valley and Goliath and what he's saying and the fear of all of the Israelite people. But then suddenly it would veer over to a whole nother town and cover a whole nother face that looks completely different than Goliath. This ruddy little teenager boy who's watching his father's sheep in Bethlehem, a day's journey away. And it just kind of zooms in on this young man, David, who we saw last week has a, has a heart after God. He's not going to always do the right things. He's going to do things that all of us can relate to. And he's going to do things that he needs to repent of. But we see his heart after God. He continues to turn back to him. He seeks God above all other things. But here he is just watching the sheep. He's been anointed king, but now he's just watching the sheep again. He's in this time of waiting, which we saw the implications of last week. This time, though, the author does give us a little bit something different about David. And I think it's just to give us this little uh, insight into the fact that David is not as meets the eye. That something big is about to happen. So it goes from the battle, the camera, to David in Bethlehem. And then the author tells us, he gives us a little bit of his lineage. To this point, David's just the youngest son of Jesse. He's just this young man who's scrawny. And there's not much to look at there. There's no kingly attributes. But then the author, as he moves from Goliath to David, in this instance, gives us this clue that there's a surprise to the story coming. that, That while we're all kind of feeling like we have no champion, and that there's no hope for us, and that God has failed us, that God is always at work, that he's always faithful, that he always fulfills his promises. He's always moving towards his glory and our good. And so he tells us his lineage, and and we find out that David actually comes from a line of great warriors, and this is the family that actually founded the town of Bethlehem. But David's still under 20 years old. He's too young for battle. That's why he's not there. We're told that his three older brothers are there. They're with Saul in the battle, the king at the time. And Jesse calls David over to him from watching the sheep, and he calls him to him. And, he, and notice that he doesn't call David uh, for the purpose of, hey, the Israelite people are at a standstill. They're afraid. They, they've forgotten who our God is. They've forgotten God's promises. They're feeling like God is failing them. They feel like it's the end of the road for our people. There's no champion to represent them. So you, David, you have been anointed king. And I know you're not king yet, but this is your time. And and the Holy Spirit has come and rested upon you. And and certainly this is the call. Like this is the moment. This This is the time. Go and ride into the valley and deliver your people. Reveal that God is great and he is in control and he is faithful. But that's not what Jesse does. He calls David to him and he asks David to deliver some food to his brothers And so David is going to go and deliver this food to his brothers and his commander. And Jesse asks for him to bring a word back. How are they doing? I want to know about the welfare of your brothers. And just really quickly, notice David's character here in verses 20 and, and following. He happily goes. Like he, David never complains. I don't know what he struggled with in his heart. I don't know what he did that we don't see. But it appears that he is just always confident and joyful doing what God has called him to do in whatever circumstance he is in. He's trusting that God is good. We don't have time to preach on it this morning, but there's a repetition here in the language and what David does to prepare himself to take the food to his brothers. It says that he found a keeper for the sheep. And then it goes on to say that he left all of his possessions with a keeper. And those are things that are really easy for us to just kind of glance over. But I think that it's really important for us to see that as David marches towards his calling, he divests himself of everything he needed to leave behind to do what God had called him to do. And sometimes in our lives, and David does this out of desire, and he does this out of his passion, his greatest passion. And listen, our greatest passion, what we place our faith in, will always be revealed in the moments of our lives. We will always act upon them. We'll see that in just a moment in David's life. But here, he he totally divests himself of everything that would hold him back from doing what God is calling him to do, but he doesn't use the sheep. It's not like, finally, I've been taking care of these sheep. I don't want to do this. This is a bad job. I'm way better than this. And just leave them behind. Someone else can worry about them because I'm moving on to bigger and better things. No, he shows us his character and his heart for God and the fact that he loves the sheep enough to know he needs to leave them, but he will provide for them. He has all the possessions that God has given him. He knows he needs to leave those behind for at least a time, but he finds a keeper for them. He shows us his heart after God, and he comes running into the valley. I just imagine David, this young teenager, just kind of running with this tray of food or whatever it may have been, just totally embarrassing his brothers, Eliab, You know, he's probably just like, oh my gosh, is that David? Like, let's over his brother Shema. Just like, let's go hide, right? Like, I mean, you just see your younger brother running into a battlefield. All of you are completely just kind of downtrodden. You're not, there's no faith. There's all fear. And you're trying to figure out how much longer are we going to be able to survive? And here comes David. It's just this little runny dude that just seems self-righteous. And he comes running in, carrying food. And all he wants to know is how you're doing. And your answer would just be like, how am I doing? Like, why would you even come here and ask us that? Isn't it obvious how we're doing? So here comes David. But notice, I want us to notice just real quickly, just as we're passing by this point, just for a second, the occasion in which David is walking into in which his great faith in God is going to reveal itself in great courage that God is going to use to reveal who he is and his salvation plan and, and how we can live in community with our God and we can trust him and that he is faithful. Uh, I want us to notice that this moment that David is moving, walking into is just a mundane task of being an obedient son. Like there's no moment building up here unless we can see the whole story where in any way, shape or form, we think David is coming in on a white horse to save the day. It just isn't the way that we would see this story. Like he's just a sheep keeper. And now suddenly he's like Uber Eats. Like he's just bringing food to his brothers. Like he's just doing one mundane job to another. He's just being obedient to his dad. But let me ask you this. When you think about your faith, when do you think that your faith will be most needed and what are the moments in your life that it is most tested and revealed in fear or courage? When are the moments in your life when you have the ability to reveal that God is trustworthy and that he is faithful and and you can rest in that in your own heart, a joy that surpasses them peace, that surpasses all understanding, and, and reveal that to all of those around you, that there's a greater God than the thing that you might be up against or that you might be losing in your life? When is that moment? Is it when you're all suited up and ready for it, or is it maybe on a... Casual Friday when you're going into work just looking forward to the weekend. That you get the call that you're sicker than you thought you were. The giant comes. The enemy is there. Maybe you're just on a Saturday going in the car with your family to do something fun that you haven't been able to do in a while and you get the call that somebody in your family that you loved has passed away. You find out that you're laid off. You find out that your marriage is on the rocks. A friend confronts you about your faith and you get really uncomfortable about it while you're trying to hang out with them and build a relationship with them. And and there's no armor on you. You're You're not ready for that. It's just a mundane task of your life. But listen, when that moment comes, what your faith is in will be revealed. And what your faith is in will determine how you handle it. Are you prepared? Are you leaning into God? Are you seeking Him now? Oftentimes we try to microwave relationships and, and faith because something has happened and all of a sudden I need a champion. I need a savior. And we look around and we haven't prepared ourselves and our mind has drifted and our hearts have faded. And, there, and we look at the fact that there is a champion in our God, but we can't see Him anymore because our heart is not prepared and we're overwhelmed with the enemy that looks so much bigger than us. And so we think to ourselves, there's no champion. There's no hope in my life. When the enemy comes, when the moment happens, when the circumstance gets hard, your faith will be revealed and it will be revealed on whether it is big enough to overcome, big enough to give joy no matter what happens, or if it will cause you to have fear in your life. And David's private, everyday faithfulness to God, his time with God, his time in prayer, his time in community with other believers leaning into who he is in God allows him to see the world through a different lens. His faithfulness privately leads to his faithfulness publicly. And so I just want us to think about what what is our faith in this morning? What, What am I resting in? What am I believing in? What am I turning to? Individually, this is a major ordeal, but we also need to ask ourselves this question as a church today. Because there's a culture all around us, like Goliath, saying, Stand against me and you will be crushed. Don't believe what I believe and you will be crushed. And right now in our culture, it seems that so much of the church is like the Israelite people, standing over to the side, unable to see the truth, wrapped in the lie, worshiping false gods and not acting, not standing up for truth. And listen to me, your greatest passion will always, as I said, be revealed in everything that you do, especially in the times of trouble. Listen to what the pastor Charles Spurgeon says of David. David had the true faith, and that leads to a holy daring, he calls it, courage. Not just sitting back and hoping that God will be faithful, but that God will be faithful to use his people as he has promised. He goes on to say, What stories will you tell when you are old? Stories of standing firm on the truth for the love of those who are around you, or those who come after you. This is your time. This is your watch how will you tell great stories, he says, if you never even labor to tell children's stories of God's faithfulness in Sunday school, not just from the book, but from your life. And I love how he uses that analogy because it just goes to show in the 1800s, it was just as hard to get people to serve in the kids' ministry as it is today. So he, th- he like throws that in there. He's like, if you love Jesus, you'll be telling stories to the kids, all right? But then he goes on to say, how will you tell these stories if you don't have stories of overcoming your own sin? Stories of telling your friend about Jesus, stories of standing for truth when the world around you caves to every pressure. Many Christians, listen to what he says, many Christians today, and it's still true of our day, live lives that are spiritually blank. We have empty pages of faith. God will do what he has said he will do. Will you be a part of it? Where is your faith? What do you turn to? David's greatest passion is revealed in this moment, and this is why he's ready. And so when he comes out onto the battlefield and Goliath comes before him, here's what we see in the back half of this passage that we just read. Goliath comes out and he begins to defy the living God and David's hearing it for the very first time and he just kind of looks around and he starts going like, is this the first time he's saying this? 80 times? Like he said this 80 times and none of you are doing anything. See, he sees the world through a completely different lens. His faith is in something completely different. It's not in the outer man. It's in the heart. It's in the God who created him. And and he has a faith that has courage. And when the glory of God is come up against, he understands the promises of God. And so therefore, he understands that in this circumstance and situation, it applies differently to us, which we'll see in just a moment. But in this situation, his people cannot fall to the Philistines. God has promised. God has already anointed him to be the next king. He knows and has the confidence that we will not end because I am the next king. God has already anointed me. The spirit has already come upon me. So he hears Goliath say this, I defy the living God and then send a champion. I'm the champion of the Philistine people. I'm the mediator. I'm the legal representation of them. Come out and face me, any of you. And the winner takes all. And David just stands there and he is in disbelief that nobody has done anything. He asks, what's the reward for this? And they list out the things that are rewarded from King Saul for the person who goes up against Goliath. And he's just dumbfounded that Saul himself, the, the giant of the Israelite people, has not gone out to face Goliath, but he has no faith in who God is and says he is and what he has done. Even Eliab, David's brother, he, he hears all the, the, the chatter going on as David is just kind of going like, is nobody going to stand up against Goliath? Like, I'll go up against Goliath. And, and he sees his little brother, this teenage brother, just going off. He's using his big mouth and saying things he shouldn't be saying because every, all the other Israelite people have already decided we're overwhelmed. There, there's no way. We're doomed. Our God is defied. And so Eliab, his older brother, comes up to him and he starts putting David in his place. David, you sound so self-righteous. Like you're being way too radical, my man. Like just back off a little bit. You're just a teenager. We all have like a past and history and training and war and we understand the situation because we're looking at what they have and we're looking at what we have and we're determining that our faith is in what we possess and therefore we should have fear, not courage. And so you need to just calm down a little bit because you're being way too radical. And I just wanna throw this out there. Oftentimes when you completely surrender yourself to God, and you put him at the center of everything in your life, and you give him glory in all things, revealing who he is in everything that you do, the people who should be on your side will be the ones most against you. It's too hard. It's not comfortable. There's too much at stake. It's too radical. And this is what happens in David's life, but Saul finds out that David is talking in this way, and, and look what he says as we begin to wrap up this morning. Verse 32. David goes to Saul. He says, "Let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine." And Saul said to David, "Verse thirty-three: You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth." But David said to Saul, "Your servant used to be keep the sheep for his father, like this morning." Like David has just like elevated his position, like in a matter of hours. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him um, out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both the lion and the bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like both of them. For this is really important he has defied the armies of the living God. Why is David doing this? For God's glory. He has defied the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul says, go ahead, may the Lord be with you. Now, isn't this absolutely incredible, like here's this teenage boy giving this speech to the king. And here's what I want us to see in this situation. It becomes very evident that David, as I said, sees things completely different than everybody else. Everybody else is asking, how big is the enemy and what do we have to combat it? But David is asking, how big is God and what does he want? He knows that he's bigger than any circumstance he could come into. Everybody else is asking and their hearts are captured by the imagination of how big Goliath is. But David's heart is captured by how big God is. They look at the size of the thing that they face, but David looks at the size of the God that he serves. See, it's the same circumstance and the same situation, but they view it in a completely different way because of what their faith is in. And this faith produces in David something that's incredible. I was, I was watching, and maybe some of you watched the, the Oregon Ducks game. Yesterday, college football, uh, if you're not familiar with who the Oregon Ducks are, but their coach, Dan Landing was giving a, a speech before the game. And I, and I was just kind of changing the channels, and I stopped it just to hear the speech, because obviously Deion Sanders is making some pretty epic speeches as well. Uh, so I wanted to see what the opponent would say that's going up against Colorado. Uh, but he said one of these things. Of course, he said some other things, like they're going for clicks, and we're going for wins, and all this like, stuff to try to rah-rah people. But, but here's what he said that I think that was missed, but it was most important. He said this. It's not about what you're going into. It's about what you're going in with. It's not about what you're going into. It's about what you're going in with. And this is what David understands. And this is why it comes out with bravery, because he knows the promises of God. He knows who he serves. So Saul sends him out. He tries to put on his armor, but the armor doesn't fit. So David's just like, I'm going to go with what I'm comfortable with. I've got a staff and a slingshot. Look in verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones. They were about the size of a tennis ball. In the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved towards him and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance." And the Philistine said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, this is huge for us to understand because back when God gave Abraham the covenant promise for his people, the Israelites, and the Messiah would come, God told him, whoever curses you will be cursed. Give glory to me and I will provide for you. I will protect you. The Messiah is coming from the Israelite people. And so Goliath unknowingly has just put himself against the living God and cursed himself. And so we know how the story is going to end. But anybody with a little bit of past and history understanding scripture and the promises of God to Abraham would know that Goliath should have just sealed his fate before it comes. And the Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the fields. So Goliath sees David coming and he goes, This is the champion. This is who's going to be the mediator between the Israelite people and me? There's absolutely no way on earth. But what we know is this is representing something so much bigger. Look at verse 46 to 47. David gives his first speech, and it is absolutely incredible. Like this is teenage trash talk at its best. Like, I don't know if you've ever gotten up and said something to people, like given a speech or something, and then you got back down and go, ah, I shouldn't have said that. I forgot that word. Like, I should have done it in this way. Like, you just feel terrible about everything. You just, like, David did not feel that way. Like, listen to what he said. Then David, verse 45, said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. "'This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, "'and I will strike you down and cut off your head, "'and I will give the dead bodies "'of the host of the Philistines this day "'to the birds of the air, "'to the wild beasts of the earth.'" Listen to this. "'That all the earth may know "'that there is a God in Israel.'" Why is this happening? So that we can just leave here and defeat our Goliath? Is this a a pep talk for us to just find the best within ourselves? and defeat our enemies and overcome our circumstances. Like David actually tells us why he's doing it. It has nothing to do with him. Goliath isn't even his giant. It's a giant against his God. It is sin. It represents darkness. Goliath represents everything that keeps us from community with God to destroy his people and to bring us out of community with him. And David is just going, if there needs to be a mediator that points to the reality that there's a mediator that will come, that will save his people and wipe away sin, then I will stand in the gap and reveal that there is one true God. See, for David, this is all about the glory of God. It's not about his giant. He knows in this circumstance the giant will fall because he knows the promises of God. But for us, the application is what is best is to put our faith in the one who created us and to live for his glory in all things, no matter what happens. Because he's the only one that brings joy beyond all circumstances. And in the end, I know the promises of God and he will return and he will restore and he will make all things new. And for all of eternity, I will be with him in his kingdom where he reigns and rules. And we can live now like David in the courage of the promise that is to come that God is gonna make all things new. That's the application for us this morning. That David sees someone defying truth and says, I will stand for the glory of God. I love what he says to Goliath because basically what he's saying is, Goliath, I know why I'm here and it's not a mistake. I'm not the one that doesn't doesn't understand what I come into this battle with. You are. Different faith. And this day will deliver, God will deliver his people. Listen, this is what we miss so much about this text. The application here is not David to us. There are some things that we can pull from this and apply them into our lives such as David's faith and, and the courage that comes from it and yes, we need to place our faith in God as he has and believe in his promises and live as though he has accomplished all things and his promises are true and yes that will give us great courage to stand for his glory in the midst of anything, whether the suffering does come or whether he delivers us in this life knowing that he will deliver us once and for all. But the deeper application and point to this story and how we apply it is that it's not David to us, it's David representing Christ, Christ to us. See, David knows. He says, the reason that I'm here is for the glory of God so that everyone would know. So he understands that he is not just a representative of the Israelites, but he and Goliath are a representative of something much greater. This is why he says the battle belongs to the Lord. And so 60 more seconds, here's how it all ends up. He goes running towards Goliath. He slings in hand. He throws the rocket. Hits Goliath in the head. Goliath falls straight down to the ground. Face down to the ground. And then David goes up to him and takes Goliath's sword. Cuts off his head. Does everything that he said he would do. But there's so much implication there we can't miss. Now we don't have time to really weed into it. But if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 5, then we would see that the Philistines had already defeated the Israelites in battle and stolen the ark and taken it back to their capital and their temple. And they put the ark of God that's representing the presence of God with the Israelite people next to their God, Dagon. They wake up the next morning and Dagon had fallen down face first before the ark. They put him back up. That's weird. And they come back the next morning. Dagon had fallen again on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. They put him back up. They come back. Three days later, the Ark is there in the temple. Dagon had fallen again, but the head had been severed off the statue before the Ark of the Covenant to reveal to the Philistine people that there is no God greater than the God who is the creator of all things. And David is representing this again to us on this day with Goliath. There was a promise given in Genesis chapter 3 that though we have rebelled, God in His love and His grace would send a Messiah, and though He would be bruised, He would crush the head of the serpent. See we have to realize, and what David wants us to know, is that Christ is our champion. What Hebrews chapter 11 says is that we have a champion in Christ that is greater than any other champion, and he is the only one that can save us and sustain us. See, what David points to is that there would be another unassuming boy born in Bethlehem who would grow up in obscurity, not esteemed by men. His brothers would mock him. His claims would seem silly and extreme, but he would step out against the enemy in the valley of death and go to the cross. And three days later, the stone of his tomb would be rolled away, and this stone would crush the head of the enemy, Satan, and sin. And now we, like the Israelite people, here's how the text ends, verses 53 on. All of the Israelite people suddenly, courage changed, faith changes. They see that they've won. The insurmountable team, the underdog, has defeated the one that should be victorious, and so they storm the field. Now they have a confidence they didn't have before and they go out on their mission and they begin to take care of the Philistines and give glory to God in everything that God has done. And because we know that we are victorious and God will return and he will restore today, we can go because we have the great champion, Jesus Christ, who saves us from our sin, mediates between sin and death and God so that we might be brought into community with him. We can see the victory and the cross and the resurrection and we can see, storm the mission field, revealing his goodness in everything that we do, with everything that we are in victory, not because of what we have done. See, in this story, we are not David. We're the Israelites and Saul. I'm too afraid. It's too big. There's no champion. And Jesus comes in and he saves us. And in him, we can live as we were created to live.